Hello and welcome to The Health Pulse, a podcast exploring how analytics in health and life sciences industry is growing and its repercussions in all our lives. My name is Greg Horn and I am your host for this series and as always we'll be joined by my expert guest to discuss a topical subject. On this week's episode we turn our attention to customer intelligence with pharma data and we have Mike Turner joining us. Uh, but before we get to Mike we've had some interesting episodes around data as it was used in real world evidence and data as it's been used to create drugs and the like and so we're still looking for questions on that. So if you want to email us at the health pulse podcast at sas.com that's the health Pulse podcast at sas.com. We're really interested to read those questions and comments and we'll hopefully feature those in later episodes as well. But they are certainly helping us to format and think about what we're doing in future episodes and it's helping me to come up with better questions and more questions for our guests too. So without further ado, let's go to today's guest and that is Mike Turner. Mike, can you do a quick introduction please? Yeah, sure, Greg, and uh, hi, everyone. So Mike Turner, I have been with SAS for a little over 10 years now. Um, I specialize in a, in a topic in an area called customer intelligence, and I, I worked across uh, a number of industry sectors, retail, I've worked in financial services. Uh, I come from a publishing background, and I've brought a lot of those sort of skills across the years to uh, to the business in that customer intelligence area. For the last year, just over a year, I've been working in uh, life sciences and looking at how we can bring some of the disciplines of customer intelligence into that world of life sciences, particularly around the relationship between large pharma and their HCP network. Brilliant. And for those who wouldn't know, what's an HCP? A healthcare professional, so doctor, uh, specialist in, in some way, yeah. Brilliant. And Mike, we ask everybody this at the beginning. So when you are not solving the world of customer intelligence issues, what do you like to do outside of SAS? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm a keen photographer, Greg. So I'm really, really keen on wildlife photography. And uh, for a number of years, been been out there trying to get that, you know, wonderful shot that will win you the National Geographic. N nowhere near success yet, of course, but um, good excuse to go out and practice as often as I can. Fantastic. I uh, My wildlife photography is limited to pictures of my pet tortoise, I'm afraid, and uh, they're not ever going to win a prize for anything. But fantastic. <laughs> nice, uh, interesting hobby. I wish you the best with that one. So Thank let's you. get into this. Um, yeah. Okay, so what does the term customer intelligence mean? Let's take this right back to the beginning. What, what do you mean by customer intelligence and how does it apply in life sciences? You know, what, who's the customer whose intelligence we're trying to glean? Sure. Yeah, it's a, it, it, it's a great name, isn't it? Customer intelligence could mean anything and often is interpreted to mean just about anything. I suppose the origins of customer intelligence go back to the world of, of marketing. And um, the, the concept was really straightforward at the beginning. How do we gather enough information about the customer base or prospects to be able to put the right message in front of them. So that very old marketing adage of, of right message, right person, right time. But over the years, of course, we, we've had an explosion in the number of channels that are available for us to communicate with, uh, with different individuals. And so the term customer intelligence has kind of grown and it's become all-encompassing. Its most recent incarnations, we, we've stopped thinking about just marketing. It's really any communication we make 
between our organization, our business, across any channel to a, a customer. And I guess for life sciences, it, it, it's quite a hard uh, concept because life sciences don't, don't sit there thinking, hey, we've got customers in the normal sense. It's not like a retail experience where we go to a store or we log on to Amazon and we, uh, you know, we make a purchase. It's not that type of customer. But they still have customers. It's that relationship they have with the healthcare professionals or if they're running clinical trials, maybe the relationships directly with subjects and they want to manage that communication network with them recognizing behaviors across all of the different channels that they might communicate with them on. So that could be a digital channel, like a website. It could be a face-to-face conversation, or it could be uh, somebody watching a podcast or listening to a podcast, for example. Um, okay. So all-encompassing in that sense. Okay, that's really interesting. So the way you describe that, it kind of sounds like something that is kind of everybody would be doing it. So has something changed? Why are organisations looking at CI now as a discipline if they weren't already? What's what's motivating them to start looking at it? So I, th- I think what's changed is the balance. If you'd and I had had this conversation before the uh, the horrible global pandemic that we're going through at the moment, um, we'd have been talking about life sciences and pharmaceutical companies primarily running their intelligence processes through face-to-face meetings. Field Salesforce out there directly sitting with those healthcare professionals, sharing information about the latest drugs, the latest treatments, the latest regimes, whatever they might be. What COVID brought about was an enforced transformation. So you may have heard the term or you may have heard people talking about digital transformation. For life sciences, COVID has, has, has kind of forced that issue to the forefront because at the start of that process of covid expanding rapidly across the globe life science companies were either only partially moving down that digital channel starting to provide information through digital services or they had very disconnected digital channels now suddenly a program that was maybe five years in planning is here today uh, and they've got to respond to it today and so customer intelligence has kind of bumped itself up that priority list and now we're, we're engaging in conversations. We're hearing a lot from farmers. There's a lot of seminars, webinars, a lot of events, virtual events out there that are trying to help farmer come to terms with what does that digital transformation, what does customer intelligence mean? So I don't think it's new. I think it's just it, it, the priority of it has changed. It's gone up the scale a little. And that's really interesting because, so one of the examples I use a lot about healthcare is that we can learn from hospitality. And I often talk about why Las Vegas is like a hospital and Mm. why healthcare can learn so much from that. Now, I'm guessing that other industries have a maturity curve in uh, customer intelligence that we've yet to see uh, developed in life sciences. So do you have key takeaways from other industries that the life sciences industry might want to use as well? Yeah, you're right. There are different levels of maturity. And I think, you know, the equivalent in CI would be to look to the CPG, the consumer packaged good companies, the likes of Nestle, uh, Mars Corporation, or retailers themselves. So Amazon are, are stated and often stated as a market leader in customer intelligence. You know, partially that's true. Sometimes they don't get it right, but they are by far in a way very much more of an experimenter in, in that world and are always willing to try new things. 
I think for life sciences, you know, what would they take away from it? Look at what the CPGs are doing. CPGs are all about trying to build direct relationships with the end user, i.e. the person that drinks the can of Coke or consumes the chocolate bar or uses the soap powder, but without displacing or upsetting their distribution network. You know, nobody is going to suddenly arrive on our doorstop tomorrow and start delivering soap powder in large boxes off the back of Pantechnicans, outside of Amazon, of course. But they still want a direct relationship with us as a customer. They still want to know what we like about their products, what we don't like. How do we consume them? Do we use them regularly? Do we use them intermittently? And so if you're in a life sciences world, you know, look at that network and that chain. Life sciences is a complex world. You know, at one end, we've got people dreaming up new compounds, creating new drugs. At the other end, we've got complex long-term treatment regimes being enacted by medical professionals using products we've manufactured. It's a hugely complex chain. So look to those organizations like CPG, see how they are managing the communications with customers, but maintaining that relationship with their network, the distribution as well. Hey, Mike, that's a very interesting point about maintaining that relationship with customers. And it gets me thinking, I live in North America, so I get bombarded with TV ads all the time from my US channels that talk about, here's a drug, we want you to take it, and then here's all the side effects. And, and you've probably seen these ads, they're, they're everywhere. Uh, yeah, yeah. You're in the UK, that isn't allowed. So are there different tactics that people have to use in that sense? How do you engage with a customer if you can't necessarily advertise to a customer? Yeah, it's a good question. So uh, engagement, and we, we, we're back to where we started really with customer intelligence. You know, engagement is natural behaviors. It's trying to lead a customer down a natural path, take them on a journey. It's not about forcing them to do anything. I have to say one of the things you do see with, with advertising in some countries, not calling out America, but you, you've, you've stated it there, Really, what we should be advocating is is much more of a, a natural observation of journeys. And this is where analytics comes in. If you think about customer intelligence, think about what I said at the beginning. You know, we are trying to observe people's behaviors in context across all the different channels that they're acting in. If we can join that information together, we can paint ourselves a picture of what that customer is about, what that customer needs and sometimes we can even be ahead of the customer and predict where they might need to go next and put a gentle recommendation in front of them. So what we see in the UK, Europe, is much more of that guided type of process rather than that in-your-face advertising that you uh, you might be experiencing there in the US. Okay. And how much of this is a blank canvas? Do organizations already have some assets in place? And how data-driven have things been in the past compared to where we're going today? Yeah, again, they're, they're, they're interesting concepts. So I, th I think one of the challenges is that organizations do have assets in place. Um, and what I mean by that is is it's it's the old argument. If, if I started a company today, take, take automotive, I started Tesla today, uh, and I build a Tesla car, what would I do? I'd have one CPU, one processor, one brain, and I'd let that drive everything for me and control everything for me. If I'm an automotive manufacturer that's got a 100-year history of building cars, I haven't got one brain. I've evolved, so it's an evolutionary process. 
Uh, and I've got lots of microprocessors. So, you know, a common complaint leveled at, at organizations is where that occurs, where you've got that evolution, they've got lots of components and that brings with it a lot of legacy behavior. So I think a lot of a lot of the organizations have got components in place. They might not necessarily at this moment in time be utilizing those in the best joined up way. And so there's two approaches here. If you are in that very fortunate, agile, small organization position of being able to create a strategy, then I think you can look at how you're going to grow and acquire your customer base. You can set up something from scratch. Very few organizations in life sciences are in that luxurious position. They'll have marketing solutions in place. They may have multiple solutions across multiple brands in multiple countries. And so for them, it's more about how do they coordinate a strategic view across all of those different assets that they've acquired or built over time. And that, again, is where we can we can start to think about the analytics, the insights. How do you drive customer insights and maybe then utilize the existing channels that are already there, connect them up with that analytical brain and allow that analytical brain to help utilize those channels in a more effective way okay so you make it sound very straightforward and i'm sure that isn't the case but think about now what are the barriers to developing a ci strategy in this space uh you know thinking about are there internal barriers are there external barriers tell me about some of those things that get in the way yeah and uh and life sciences is an area where you have very heavy legislation so in terms of external barriers, um, they're going through a similar journey in life sciences to financial services. The journey financial services went through, heavily legislated, heavily governed. You have to be very careful about communications, very clear. You have to set your protocols up front. Retail doesn't have that problem, of course. It can make things up on the fly, be far more agile, test things if it goes wrong. They get some free publicity in the newspaper and then obviously we're all back to normal and everybody goes back to buying again the following day. So the barriers externally in life sciences tend to be uh, more of those um, you know, structural barriers caused by legislation, governance and behaviour. Internally, it's far more interesting, I think. Internally, it, it's a lot to do with the way the organizations are structured. There's never normally one person responsible for CI, and therein lies the problem. Any of the very large farmers have multiple individuals who have a say or a right or a, an ability to make decisions about customer intelligence. And if you've got you know, a global organization and you've got multiple country managers making their own decisions, trying to get that joined up is a really tough ask of any CEO. Yeah, we are seeing the emergence of the chief digital officer now in the world of life sciences. And that's not a bad thing, but, but you, know, you question, does that individual yet have the authority to impose solutions and drive the level of change that's required. So I think the challenges really are a lot about self-made. Um, you know, we've given these people the authority to to manage their markets, drive the results in their markets. We're now in a position where we're saying, yeah, but we want some of that authority back to create this this wonderfully super brain that will help us drive better efficiencies. And you know yourself, giving up 
responsibility and authority is, is quite a hard thing to ask people to do. So it is very much a bit of a challenge in that sense. Yeah, interesting. And I'm just thinking now, you talked a lot about CI in terms of marketing product that exists. So mm. how much is customer intelligence used at the start of the product cycle? Do we use customer intelligence to start understanding what the R&D should look at for the next thing to make? Or is that something that hasn't been kind of considered yet? So I think I think in some situations that's feasible, uh, in, in and in others, obviously um, not not quite the same. It depends what disciplines, what drugs, what treatment regimes we're talking about. But if you're thinking about the larger scale manufacturers of over the counter treatments, for example, it's absolutely feasible. And you know, many retailers will talk to you about how they run observational panels of experts who will get together and give feedback on you know, any aspect of a product that's being produced uh, and give you insights that you should then use. Now, again, CI has a, a wonderful ability. You know, we have this plethora of channels. We have the ability to communicate with people in their channel of preference. And if we do it correctly, we have the authority and the right to ask them to participate in our development, in our product development. Because at the end of the day, you know, we are manufacturing things that we want customers to want and to use. Who better to ask then what's right and what's wrong with our products than the people that we're aiming to use them? So, yes, I think limited in some cases, but I think, yes, you can involve them and we should involve them earlier in the process and use CI to drive those conversations. Well, I think they should be asking me about my opinion of uh, anti-wrinkle cream, maybe. No, I jest. Ah, okay. But um, that's a very interesting point as well. And I want to then think about, build on that question and think about the future. So for my last question today, Mike, I want to ask you a bit about where do you see this going? What are the areas where you think CI is going to have a real influence in the pharma industry? And, and kind of indicate the timescales you think that might occur over. Okay. I think there's some there's some really exciting things going on in the CI. I mean, the, the advent, and we've seen a little bit of this in IoT, in pharma as well, but the Internet of Things has opened a new door. So it's kind of a new passive channel that exists out there. And again, I'll point you at an automotive example. You think about the car now, and we think about cars as connected items. I heavily involved in a couple of master's courses in the UK with a couple of universities and teaching digital marketing. One of the students turned around to me and, and said uh, last year, so does that now mean the car has become a channel? Is it like a giant mobile phone? Is it just a mobile phone on wheels? And we all had a good laugh about that and went away and sat down and, and had a beer when we were allowed out. And you actually think about it. You think, actually, he's not far wrong. We now have the ability to communicate with an individual as a known individual in a car. Now, think about that, an IoT in the world of, of pharma. We've seen the, the advent of nanotechnology in tablets that can be taken. We can record, you know, uh, journeys through the alimentary canal. We can, we can see all sorts of things. But we also have devices now, that wearable devices, and they're not just Apple Watches or... Uh, you know, Fitbit devices. We're talking about clothing that has sensors built into it. We're talking about asthma pumps that have IoT devices in them. And if you think about CI and we think about regimes of treatment, for example, for someone with asthma, 
wouldn't it be a fantastic service to be able to offer to combine weather and pollution data with an IoT-enabled asthma device so that the device recommends dosage based on your personal profile and the area, the location, the situation you're in. It's not really science fiction. It's already out there. People are already experimenting with these different capabilities around the globe. So for me, I think, you know, you bring IoT, CI, analytics together, that wonderful triumvirate of disciplines and skills. And at that point, we start to be able to enable some really exciting ways of helping customers, or in this case, patients, to deliver the right kind of medicines at the right time to them and help them stay healthy for longer. Wow, thanks very much, Mike. That's uh, very insightful. And thank you for joining us on the Health Pulse today. And I'm very keen to get uh, feedback from the listeners here. Remember, the email address is thehealthpostpodcast at sas.com. I really want to think about that last point there that Mike talked about. You know, how is IoT involved in the use of pharma? But more importantly, again, this is another area where we've just heard about social determinant data playing a very key influence in uh, the development of a health or a life sciences channel. And so feedback on that at the Health Pulse podcast at sas.com is always gratefully received. So I want to just say thank you to Mike for joining us today. We will be bringing you another episode in a couple more weeks. So thank you for joining me on The Health Pulse. I've been your host, Greg Horn. Please like and subscribe to receive further episodes and we'll be back in your inbox very soon. Thank you very much. <laughs>